Hey, Unchained listeners. As you know, it's hard keeping up with the fast-paced world of crypto, so we've got just the thing for you. Subscribe to our free Unchained daily newsletter at unchainedcrypto.substack.com. You'll get the latest crypto news and original articles from our reporters, as well as summaries of other happenings and bullet points, plus our meme of the day, all curated and written by our amazing team. It's still your no-hype resource for all things crypto, just in newsletter form. Sign up at unchainedcrypto.substack.com. Again, the URL is unchainedcrypto.substack.com. Hi, everyone. Welcome to Unchained, your no-hype resource for all things crypto. I'm your host, Laura Shin. If you've been enjoying Unchained, pop into iTunes to give us a top rating or review. That helps other listeners find the show. Build the real-time story of your most valuable accomplishments, as told to you by those who know you best with Appreciate, available in the iTunes App Store. As a sponsor of Unchained, Appreciate recognizes amazing people because its purpose is to promote the power of recognition to build relationships. Who will be appreciated today? Stay tuned. Sun Exchange is a solar power marketplace for the crypto economy. Sun Exchange members all over the world are earning cryptocurrency for helping to deliver solar power generation to businesses and communities in emerging markets. Visit thesunexchange.com to start earning solar powered money today. Smart contracts are on the rise, and that trend will only continue. Security has become an absolute necessity, and QuantStep is the standard for smart contract security for the blockchain. With a team of security experts dedicated to defeating the bad actors, QuantStamp is the gold standard for safer, more reliable smart contracts. Find out more at quantstamp.com. My guests today are Kathleen Brightman, CEO of Dynamic Ledger Solutions, the creators of Tezos, and Ryan Jesperson, president of the Tezos Foundation. Welcome, Kathleen and Ryan. Thank you. Great to be on here. Thank you, Laura. Just a heads up for listeners, Kathleen and the foundation will not be commenting on any questions about pending lawsuits, so you won't hear any questions about those today. Kathleen, why don't you start with how you got into crypto and tell us what Tezos is? Oh, well, I jokingly say that I married into um, cryptocurrency. Um, so my husband and I are, are pretty passionate about the core promise of cryptocurrency overall, um, which is to make a world with um, online native digital asset to the internet. And so we got interested in Bitcoin pretty early on, around 2012 or so. And in 2013, um, we started to think a little bit more about the cryptocurrency craze. And around that time was the first sort of altcoin boom, which we commonly refer to as a Cambrian explosion of different forks of Bitcoin, all of which purported to have new innovations on top of the core Bitcoin protocol, which we'd been following pretty closely. And so um, the common argument around that time was that this was actually great for Bitcoin overall, because all of these innovations, um, which were seen in things like Litecoin, uh, the first iterations of Zcash and the first papers that led to Zcash, um, could all be folded into the Bitcoin protocol. And the question we posed was how, you know, because Bitcoin didn't have a very clear way to upgrade itself in the code base that was attached to it. And so from this core observation was born Tezos, which is a, a smart contract platform, which was launched into a beta net phase on June 30th of this year. Um, so it's been a while, but basically the core um, observations and ideas that led to this um, originated from our close observation of the space in 2013 and led to um, the beginning of Tezos development in 2014 and finally the Binnet launch, um, which was a few weeks ago. 
And in terms of what Tezos is, it is a solution to how it is that you could upgrade such a protocol. It has a governance mechanism by which people can propose different upgrades. They can actually write the code for those. They can maybe, if if the people who are using the protocol like the proposal can vote to adopt it, and then those developers can also then be rewarded in tokens for their contribution correct? Yeah, that's the core promise of Tezos is, well, blockchains are ultimately a coordination technology. And Bitcoin and every other cryptocurrency does have some form of um, governance mechanism. But what Tezos tries to do is by formalizing this process um, and giving people a way to actually amend the process itself, um, hopefully there's a better better means to iterate on existing uh, innovations in the space, in the ecosystem. And just for listeners who don't know, Kathleen's husband is Arthur Brightman, who he's the CTO of Dynamic Ledger Solutions. Is that correct? Indeed. Yes. Okay. Yeah. And so he wrote the first Tezos white paper under under a pseudonym, L.M. <laughs> Goodman, named <laughs> after a Newsweek reporter who tried to name Dorian Nakamoto as Satoshi Nakamoto. All right, Ryan, describe how you got into crypto and, and what you do as head of the Tezos Foundation. Yeah, that, that's a great question. Let me give a little bit of a background. So I was a an executive and turnaround specialist in the healthcare industry, and also during that period of time, co-founded a software company uh, that I sold. And then after that, decided to do something totally different, to jump in the humanitarian space for about two years, and really researching researching and experimenting on ways to help uh, the poor in developing countries and how to lift them uh, you know, out of poverty and, and help them. Loved that work. Um, after that, decided to jump back into uh, technology and had an executive role at a fintech company. And then during that time, I just became, I had a colleague, a colleague uh, introduced me to, uh, you know, to blockchain and all things blockchain and just became incredibly uh, passionate about it, just about the technology and about the promise that there is um, through the technology to see really a change in the world um, for, I believe, the better. And so I would just um, spend a ton of time researching, deep diving on different aspects of blockchain technology, different protocols, and came across uh, Tezos and, you know, read the white paper and was really impressed by the ability clear back in 2014 of, of Arthur to be able to uh, look into the future and to be able to see the problems that would be relevant in the space and then also to provide solutions for that. And so I became a, uh, a regular contributor during the uh, you know donation period. And subsequently, uh, like many, I became concerned when I heard about the dysfunction at the Tezos Foundation. And so... Um, uh, helped to organize the uh, the global community um, around a petition to be able to make sure that the uh, the community's voice was heard in all that was happening, and uh, and through subsequent events um, and continuing to help organize the community became ultimately. Um, you know, the president of the Tezos Foundation, someone who was seen as a, a trusted intermediary, I think, to be able to solve the, um, you know, the, the situation, the, the, the dysfunction, and really to move things forward. Yeah, so we're going to get more into this dysfunction that existed in the Tezos Foundation before you came on board. Um, but before we get there, the next set of questions are actually primarily uh, directed at Kathleen because I want to go into Tezos' history. But Ryan, you can feel free to jump in where you see fit. Kathleen, Tezos started as a white paper that Arthur published, but you didn't, and that happened in 2014, but you didn't have your ICO in 2017. So what happened in those uh, intervening years, 2014 to 2017? 
Yeah. I mean, um, it was a pretty tumultuous time in the cryptocurrency space. Um, during the course of those three years or so, I think some of the ideas in Tezos faded in and out of fashion. And so we kept on working on the code. We, we had a prototype in 2014, and a lot of the same logic um, from the core prototype is really what you see today um, in terms of divorcing three layers of the protocol, using a generic network shell in order to distinguish what's the canonical version. All of that logic has basically been around um, for the past three years or so. Um, mostly what's been worked on the past year and a half, or, or yeah, year and a half, give or take, um, has been the networking layer and the peer-to-peer -peer, uh, messaging layer of Tezos, um, which is, of course, very fragile and very important to the um, functionality of the code base. But I think what you mean to ask is, um, why, why conduct a fundraiser in 2017 and why go that route? Um, well, the short answer is uh, Arthur and I kind of had a hobbyist attitude towards this project. And so it was simple enough to do this nights and weekends and have a interest in what was going on. But I think the ecosystem um, was very immature at the time, and it wasn't really easy for us to gauge at what point we should jump in or if Tezos would really even um, garner much interest. But it became pretty obvious in 2016 for a variety of reasons um, that the core premise of what we had touched upon in 2014 um, was at the very least in vogue, um, if not deeply uh, needed by, uh, by, by the marketplace. And so we thought that was an interesting experiment to endeavor upon. And by that, are you talking about the issues with scaling in Bitcoin and then what happened with the Ethereum hard fork? Yeah, exactly. Um, basically, the Tezos white paper, when it came out in 2014, a fair amount of people picked up on it. Um, some of the existing advisors read it and they were um, very impressed, for example. So we've had the same advisors for a few years now, but largely the fanfare was was not exactly there because uh, the position paper, for example, talks a lot about a lot you know some severely abstract terms, <laughs> um, many of which have been studied now, like the whole notion of minor dis, uh, you know incentive alignment um, is something that we discuss in the position paper, but it seemed kind of far off at the time. Um, but since then, people have studied how miners act in Bitcoin, for example, and how they may not have the same interests as uh, token holders. Um, so things like that tension um, seem very abstract in the position paper, but came to I think came to be sort of the discussion or part of a fruitful discussion in 2016 between the scaling debate in Bitcoin and between the um, contentious hard fork in Ethereum in 2016 with the DAO hack. Yeah, I definitely agree that as events played out, it became clear that a solution like Tezos that had so-called on-chain governance could be an interesting way to try to go about and resolve these types of issues. Although, you know, this doesn't mean that um, it's a certainty that on-chain governance is actually going to work. You know, obviously everything's an experiment now. Um, but one other, one other thing I wanted to ask about those years, you were working at R3 and just fill in, you know, kind of what it was that you and Arthur were doing professionally during those time, during that time. Yeah, of course. Um, yeah, so I guess 2014, um, I finished up a stint at Brewer Associates, which is a hedge fund in Connecticut. And then I went to work as a consultant for Accenture. By my own admission, I'm not a great consultant. Uh, and so when the opportunity came in-house to kind of build up a blockchain practice, I jumped at that because I knew quite a bit about uh, Bitcoin as a cryptocurrency. And so I soon started working on the internal sort of blockchain working group. And I quickly found it much more interesting than any other consulting opportunities I had at the firm. And I found more and more excuses to participate in that. 
And I was very lucky to have a lot of guidance and mentorship within the firm that was um, hospitable to me, actually in, indulging in my interests. And uh, that soon led to an opportunity at R3, which was, um, well, what is um, a fintech firm um, that had just established a massive consortium of, of banks in order to use their blockchain solution. Um, so I worked there as a senior strategy uh, associate for, I guess, nine months. And... Um, I had a great time there, but it just became pretty obvious that the opportunity to, to work on Tezos was too good to pass up. So with great regret, I left, um, I guess, in September 2016. And um, Arthur, in the meantime, uh, worked in finance for about 10 years as a market maker, an options market maker at Morgan Stanley most recently. And then he also made a pretty big pivot in his um, career. Uh, and he, he worked at Waymo in the self-driving car group at Google, um, at a Google X rather, um, for about a year and a half prior to joining Tezos full-time. The Tezos ICO, which occurred about a year ago, was at the time the largest in history, raising $232 million. Part of the reason for that was that Tezos did not cap the funds it raised. Why did you guys choose to do an uncapped sale? Um, well, that decision actually laid with the foundation, um, but the rationale at the time was that basically this ecosystem, this network um, benefits from, or rather is beholden to what's called Metcalf's Law, meaning um, the more users that participate in the network, um, the more robust and, and valuable it is. And so this was a rare opportunity to bootstrap um, that type of network and distribute the token amongst people who were very interested in it. And so that was kind of the rationale there. Yeah, I agree with you know that philosophy in the sense that, as we saw with things like basic attention token, where only 217 addresses or something got got in the sale. Um, I feel like it leads to what I call the ticket scalper situation, where like if you ever lived in New York and try to get into a hot concert, like basically the ticket scalpers would, would take all the tickets like in the first second of the sale. And then you would be forced to spend a lot of money later and pay them. Or in California, um, Burning Man. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and I felt like the same thing was happening here with these um with these ICOs. So in that sense I do agree that it's sort of like if you uncap it then the speculators cannot uh the ticket scalpers cannot um cannot make a killing for doing nothing but scamming people. Uh, <laughs> anyway, so the other thing is that why did you guys do the sale before you launched the network? I remember you know, shortly, like around maybe the spring of 2017, I asked you if you felt that you ran any regulatory risk by having the sale before the launch. And you said you felt comfortable at the timing because the launch was going to happen within five months of the sale. Obviously, that didn't happen. So would you do things differently now if you could do them over again? I think by and large, no. There's some personnel choices I would not have made, but um, <laughs> that's one way of putting it. But I think by and large, I, th I really do believe in the nonprofit structure, and I really do believe in um, the way the network was bootstrapped um, and the number of participants that were included, the diversity of participants. I think that's ultimately what makes a great community, and I think these ecosystems are ultimately at the behest of a great community, right? Like, that's what drives this ecosystem. And so... What came out of this um, ultimately was like a great group of people, um, you know, people like Ryan uh, Jesperson, for example, participating uh, is a testament to the, the virtues of the network and the capabilities and the vision around it. Um, so obviously, it hasn't been without stress or without any sort of missteps, I suppose, on behalf of um, 
many people, but certainly I don't, I don't regret the outcome, right? It, I think ultimately like Tezos is a great community. It's got a great ecosystem around it. I'm really excited about the future. And that's largely because, you know, 30,000 malts were opened up by tremendously um, talented and interesting and <laughs> excitable <laughs> um, individuals, all of whom bring something to the table and something to the ecosystem. But in this case where we've seen that the regulators now do seem to be maybe trending in the direction of making a distinction between tokens that are sold before the network is live versus tokens that are sold once the network is live. Like for instance, with the Wyoming laws, which for listeners who aren't familiar with that, you can listen to an episode I did on Unconfirmed with Caitlin Long, who was instrumental in pushing those laws through. But that is one distinction that the Wyoming laws make. And then here with kind of, I mean, this is very indirect, but with director, with SEC director Hinman's remarks about Ether, Ether no longer being a security, the way he phrased it was, you know, at leaving aside the manner of sale, uh, you know, he, so he was kind of implying that at the time of sale, perhaps Ether was a security, but now it's not, which again, makes that distinction between whether the network is live or not. You, like, despite you know, this new development in the way the regulators are, are talking about what determines whether something's a security or not, you still feel that you would have done the sale before the network launch? Well, functionality of the Alphanet um, has largely been unchanged since February 2017 when it was made public. So I, I think it's a little bit unfair for you to ask me this because quite a bit has happened since um, the fundraiser and I don't know exactly what could be done today. So, you know, uh, unfortunately, like, I don't think that <laughs> I, I really can't answer that. You know, I'd like to, but it's like there's a lot of facts and circumstances that have changed um, since July 2017. Well, July 13, 2017, to be more precise. You're the CEO of Dynamic Ledger Solutions, which owns all the intellectual property for Tezos, but will eventually sell it to the foundation. What is the purpose of having two different entities, one corporate and one nonprofit? I think it for us, like what we kind of saw is the beauty of that was a clean break between the foundation's responsibilities and DLS's responsibilities and a clear line between like what the founders would get and what would go back into the general ecosystem. So basically writing a clean line um, was kind of the benefit of that ultimately. And so the previous head of the foundation was a man named Johan Gevers. And this is sort of the elephant in the room that we've been um, <laughs> moving around, but you had several disputes with Johan. And so I'm going to start kind of describing what appears to have happened here. And here I'm summarizing from the Wired cover story on Tezos by Gideon Lewis Krauss, which I will link to in the show notes. And um, I interviewed Gideon for my other podcast, Unconfirmed. I'll link it to it in the, in the show notes so you can listen. So Immediately after the close of the sale, Johan proposed a COO for the Tezos Foundation, who he also proposed would serve as CEO for his own startup, Monitas. He then appears to have proposed a contract for tokens for himself that he told you would be worth hundreds of thousands of dollars, but privately expressed to other people was likely worth millions. After his suggestion for the part-time CEO for Tezos field, he tried to get the CEO of Monitas installed as the Tezos CFO, but didn't disclose that conflict of interest. He also directed the other foundation board members to stop talking to you and Arthur. What kind of due diligence did you perform on Johan? 
Good question. Um, <laughs> I think that's something that uh, Gideon doesn't go into a tremendous amount in the Ward story, um, though obviously it's a very exhaustive piece. Yeah, I mean, um, certainly Arthur had encountered Johan and he had um, positive um, interactions with him previously. Um, but I think what's more, Johan was both recommended by many prominent people in the so-called Crypto Valley. We did the standard background checks on him, but the man has lived in several different jurisdictions. And so um, they weren't perhaps as exhaustive or thorough in retrospect. Um, but certainly that type of um, diligence was done. Um, but what's more like, you know, the guy was introducing Arthur to pretty much anyone who, you know, quote unquote, mattered, all the movers or shakers in the crypto valley ecosystem. And so I think it stands to reason if you're kind of importing Silicon Valley logic to... Uh, to, to general business practice that, yeah, you know, why would someone pick up the phone from someone who they didn't quite think was a credible source? Why would, you know, politically connected and very savvy people engage in, and actively fraternize with someone who they didn't think was a person of good standing or good character? Um, so it was a mix of like just general positive interactions. Also the types of things that Johan had represented himself as doing. For example, he, I think, indulged a bit in monetosic success. And it, in fact, Laura, um, several people who contributed to the Tezos fundraiser are also investors in Monetos, um, none of whom felt the need to contact me about any of this um, until well after um, uh, the news of Monetos's bankruptcy came to light, for example. Um, so I think it was just a general air of um, he seemed very well respected. There is nothing terribly suspicious in his background of what we knew, of course. And um, you know, the, the guy also, I think, misrepresented himself, or maybe he represented what he thought was a version of the truth, but which didn't check out with reality. I was curious, you know, you raised all these questions about why it is that different people in Swiss, Switzerland's Crypto Valley did respond to Johan's calls and why, you know, they seemed open to doing business with him. Why, why do you think that is? I, well, in retrospect, I have no idea. <laughs> I mean, this whole thing has been very confusing on several fronts and some of this stuff just like, you know, it's not worth trying to figure out what happened because the past is the past. Um, but certainly a lot of things look very odd in the strange light of day. So meaning at the time, it seemed like he was somebody who was a really respected and central player in Crypto Valley, which is where you wanted to set up your Tezos Foundation. And then uh, it turns out now, what, what is your perception of, of him? Well, I think this show is very PG-13, so let's try to keep it that way. <laughs> um, I mean, I don't have very nice things to say, which I think if you read the Wired piece is eminently clear. <laughs> and you don't have any theories as to why things seemed one way on the surface and so different when you began working with him? Well, I think that like certainly the amount. So I, I think there's a few things that happened. If I'm if I'm going to be a little circumspect about it, but uh, I think that part of this was like Johan has never really had a lot of professional success, um, and certainly Monotos was apparently going down the tubes while Tezos um, was gaining a lot of notoriety and, and popularity in the crypto ecosystem. And I think that what might have been a very earnest um, attempt to be a board member turned into something a bit more opportunistic um, once uh, a lot of money was pledged to a foundation that he had an inordinate amount of control over. I think that another part of this is that in general, it seems as though there's a lot more emphasis and veneration for being 
um, agreeable rather than being confrontational in at least the Zug business culture, um, of which I was, you know, rather surprised and, and rather disheartened to kind of find out firsthand. And so I think like the path of least resistance isn't to just um, castigate someone uh, who is acting in a certain way. And that's certainly not the case in New York, <laughs> where I come from, and it's really not the case in Silicon Valley. So I think it, there's a cultural element to this where like, um, there's a path of least resistance um, to kind of uh, have Johan do whatever Johan wanted to do. And then what's more, I think that this man who is in middle age and has never really seen a lot of success, who I think struggles with relationships to reality, um, you know, kind of had an opportunity to um, sort of reshape his image in, in this area that he fairly, clearly felt a deep personal commitment to. He's credited as being the founder of the Crypto Valley. And so I think he was trying to um, look for a way to recover his ego and find some success. And um, he was being a very opportunistic in trying to change the the tone or the tenor of the Tezos project when given the opportunity. And to go back to the due diligence you guys did, who did you talk to and what kinds of questions did you ask? Because as you mentioned, it seems that people later did come out of the woodwork and really tell you what their history was with him and, and it wasn't very positive. So, you know, what, what, what did you do at that time? What, what did you ask and who did you talk to? Oh, well, you know, I'd rather not, I'd rather not implicate anyone who's still doing business um, in Zurich, like less the foundation have to work with them. Um, but suffice it to say, there are a number of different people who are very prominent in the Bitcoin, Bitcoin ecosystem who lauded Johan for his deep pockets, but short arms and his business savvy. I know several former employees of Monitas who never uttered um, a negative word about Johan, um, but who later went on the record, for example, um, talking about his malfeasance and how he had defrauded many of them. And so, yeah, I was, you know, I'm just as surprised, frankly, <laughs> um, that that people kind of didn't mention anything at the time. But certainly, I think we were relatively, you know, I, obviously hindsight is twenty twenty. Um, you know, I, I certainly didn't enjoy my time with Johan at the foundation's head or foundation board. Um, but, you know, certainly we did try to understand the character of the guy and um, really no one ever said anything nasty about him beforehand. But then in, when a lot of the allegations came to light, um, many of the people who contact me, contacted me had also disclosed that he had threatened them with lawsuits um, if they ever uttered a negative word about him. So I think there's a fair amount of bullying going on as well. Um, and again, like this path of least resistance um, to just be quiet <laughs> um, was certainly aided and abetted by the fact that he's ra a rather litigious gentleman um, who seems to relish bullying other people and trying to take litigious action against them if they cross him. And just so I'm clear, are you saying that the the people that you contacted for the due diligence were then later the same ones who then revealed to you what had actually, you know, what their true experience had been with him or were they different people? So the ones who had given him positive reviews were different from the ones who later told you negative um, things. About I would him. say there were about 40% more people who came out after the fact, um, but there was still a, a pretty big cohort of people who, I thought it was great that Johan be the head of the Tezos Foundation, thought it was a great choice and congratulated me even on like nagging such a successful person in the Zook ecosystem. And then like, I don't know, I remember in October, I got like a phone call from someone um, who had who had 
um, characterized Johan as having um, deep pockets but short arms and being very fiscally responsible, who is like, yeah, no one likes that guy. <laughs> um, so, uh, you know, it's, it's, it, I have no idea um, what sort of tune changed, but um, I certainly have a Rolodex of people who I knew before and after the Johan debacle, and I'm not going to like name names and throw people under the bus because most of them are just innocent folks who are like either early on in their careers or who are just private investors who got um, swindled by Johan in their own way um, through the Monotos uh, debacle, which is another <laughs> crazy story. But, you know, I think everyone just kind of thought, like, what's the worst this guy could do? <laughs> and maybe they didn't think it was worth kind of going out on a limb to just um, uh, warn me about his potential malfeasance. But certainly a lot of people came out of the woodwork and contacted me from Johan's previous circles. Um, and, you know, what was even kind of weirder is I had like a handful of mutual friends, at least on Facebook with Johan. And so I would reach out to them. It's like, well, you know, Johan always spoke very highly of you. Um, and I know you're close friends. And they'd be like, wait, what are you talking about? I, I met that guy once at a conference five years ago. And so I kind of got this picture of like a very lonely and, and, and aggressive person. Um, and I have no idea exactly what prompted people to do this. But I think just the kind of the order of um, damage of what he did to myself and my husband um, is far greater than anything else probably anyone could have imagined, frankly. Um, and so I don't think that anyone could have ideated that someone whose incentives were so clearly aligned with the project being a success um, would try to would try to push it by the wayside and, and basically like um, stop the project's productivity dead in its tracks when given the opportunity. I think it's the combination of a lot of things, and I'm trying to be sympathetic to people who didn't speak up before. Though, as someone who's like, a bit confrontational in my own personal life, I, I did find it a, a bit appalling. Hey listeners, just a heads up that after recording this episode, I asked Johan for a response to the claims about his behavior made in the podcast. He invited my questions, but did not respond to the three emails that included the questions. We're going to discuss how you broke the deadlock and what it is that you plan to do with Tezos now that you've launched the beta net. But first I'd like to take a quick break to tell the listeners about our fabulous sponsors. Now it's time to recognize someone sponsored by Appreciate. Appreciate is the truest story of you, forever yours to showcase. Why is it that when you change jobs, you lose all that hard-earned credit for the good things you accomplished? Does it make sense that your performance review is forever stuck at your old company? No, and that's why Appreciate is live in the iTunes App Store. Today, Appreciate recognizes Catherine Minshew. As CEO and founder of The Muse, she has dedicated her life to helping people navigate their careers and companies tell the authentic data-driven story that showcases them as employers. It's your career. Own it with Appreciate. Available in the iTunes App Store and sponsored by the GC Protocol. Imagine this. You dedicate countless hours of hard work to creating a smart contract only to be hacked in mere minutes. If you think that can't happen... Think again. We hear that $10 billion has been raised through smart contracts, but over $300 million of that has already been compromised. Hackers are hungry for more, so security is not just critical to your success, it's an absolute necessity. And that is where QuantStamp, the standard for smart contract security, comes in. With a team of security audit experts dedicating to defeating the bad guys, the Quant Stamp of Approval is your solution for safer smart contracts. Find out how we can be the gold standard for security at quantstamp.com. SunExchange is a solar power marketplace for the crypto economy. SunExchange members all over the world are earning cryptocurrency while solar powering businesses and communities in emerging markets. Through the sunexchange.com, for as little as $10 and in just a few clicks, 
you can purchase solar cells and lease them to projects in the world's sunniest regions, earning you an income stream of monetized sunshine paid in Bitcoin. SunExchange members can earn between 10 and 15% IRR, backed by the power of the sun. Founded in 2015, SunExchange is operating solar projects across southern Africa, entirely powered by our members' solar cells. Our partners include SolarCoin, the United Nations Development Programme, and the Energy Web Foundation. Visit www.thesunexchange.com to check terms and eligibility to join the crypto solar revolution. Start earning solar-powered money today. I'm speaking with Kathleen Brightman and Ryan Jesperson of Tezos. So how were you able to eventually break the deadlock? And I think Ryan also might finally jump back in here. <laughs> um, you know, I, um, so it was around, you know, I'd started hearing about the dysfunction of, of the Tezos Foundation. And I think as well as all of the other community members was just, you know, really concerned, obviously, about, uh, you know, allegations uh, that were going back and forth and and the apparent um, just um, inaction of, of the foundation and really providing uh, meaningful resources or any resources towards uh, what they were intended towards is to, you know, for the Tezos protocol. And so starting the first part of December, of 2017, um, I started to to get ideas about how to help um, organize the uh, the Tezos community and really make sure that the the Tezos community's voice was heard in what was happening. And so we launched a petition the first part of uh, of December. And admittedly, initially, um, you know, as the first signature started to come through, I was just hoping, come on, you know, let this be something that we can rally around and let this um, let us kind of unite our voices to to make sure that we're being heard. And it was really neat just to see the strength and the resilience of the community and to every, see everybody from all around the world. We ended up with almost uh, 2000 signatures from over 95 countries and to see that wide just uh, diversity of of community members unite around this this theme of hey like we want to make sure our voices are heard and help to res- resolve this you know this dysfunction at the foundation it was extremely encouraging and so um, you know because of my background uh, you know more in a, as an executive role and I've been on boards before you know I knew that the it was great that as a community we were uniting around this cause and that we were signing this petition but also at the end of the day. Um, you know, for the people that it mattered to have hear this, they probably wouldn't give a lot of, of deference or, or weight to a group of disparate uh, community members signing, you know, a petition online. But we really needed to represent it in a way, particularly to the um, to the supervisory authority, the authority in Switzerland that oversees foundation, just so that we could uh, present this in a, in a formal way to, to the body who helps, you know, um, oversee, you know, foundations in Switzerland. So there was a conversation I had with, with my wife. She's been a saint through all of this. I've, you know, uh, I'm married and then I have, have three small children. And so I remember talking to her and just saying, you know, honey, um, uh, Really, I believe in this project Tezos and to, to really make sure that everyone's voice is heard, I, I would like to hire Swiss Council and I need to start sending them money to be able to to help, you know, this effort to move forward. And so I started paying for um, competent Swiss Council to represent that voice of the community uh, to the supervisory authority and really doing it with the perspective of just trying to help find a solution uh, to the problem. And so not adversarial necessarily in nature, but just, hey, let, let's figure out a, a way out of this. 
And then after that, we started to think as a community, you know, maybe we should, um, still no resources are flowing. And so maybe we should, um, you know, uh, start some sort of, sort of organization and just all uh, donate ourselves to this and provide resources towards development because the funds aren't flowing from the foundation. And then after that, you know, we started to realize that, look, I mean, we need to solve a problem that's bigger than that. You know, we need to make sure that there is a safe place for the network to launch. If the, if the first foundation um, can't get us act together or if the Tezos Foundation. And I think what's really incredible about this time period that people don't realize is just the, uh, I think the grit and the, the determination of Arthur and Kathleen is incredible in all of this. I think um, hats off to the development team who continued to, to, to work and, and progress towards, uh, you know, um, towards the launch of the, of the protocol and work on the code, like heads down, despite all of the conflict that was happening and the lack of lack of resources. So, so we wanted to um, provide a safe place for the network to launch. And so we, um, in essence, launched the, what was called the T2 foundation, which would be an alternate foundation that um, the network could launch at if the, uh, if the first was not able to do so a Swiss foundation and recruited a, uh, you know, a strong board to represent that, that foundation, but still the, uh, the tenor and the disposition was, Hey, this is really, it's not adversarial to the Tezos foundation. It's really not. We just care deeply about the technology and we want to help find a, a resolution to the, to the situation. And so I think through that process, and then just because of maybe kind of the disposition um, and, um, and I, I'm a fairly, you know, calm person and like to just kind of logically go through things. And, and I think and, and just deeply care about the, the protocol, the project. And so I became this, uh, you know, trusted intermediary to help to, I think, find a way out of the uh, of that um, dysfunctional state. I'm ultimately ending uh, in uh, with me, uh, you know, with Johan uh, Givers uh, stepping down from the foundation, you know, me being made the president of the Tezos Foundation. And then, you know, immediately after that, or, or very soon after that, we uh, we expanded the board to a seven person board to help ensure that uh, the foundation would never return to that dysfunctional state. We had very competent people uh, on that board. You know, Olaf is on that board. Uh, we have, um, you know, uh, premier research scientist, um, you know, the first uh, a female in Switzerland to receive a, a master's degree in computer science um, is on that board. Just uh, a global representative board that really, you know, cares about uh, cares about technology and about Tezos. Let's rewind to that point where there was still this standoff between the Tezos Foundation where when Johan was in charge of it and Tezos. Uh, or, or DLS. At that time, the amount that you guys had fundraised had ballooned to, I think, 400 million. And so what was actually happening at that point? The foundation was in control of the funds. And for that reason, you couldn't hire developers to continue uh, developing the network for launch. Is that what was going on there? Well, the arrangement was that after the fundraiser, the foundation would basically pick up where DLS left off and it would um, fund the last bits of development, which included um, code reviews and audits, um, which are rather capital intensive. And so um, the expectation was that the developer contracts would be sent over to the foundation and the foundation would renew them and, and carry on um, with employment of uh, the development team and also contract out for um, a variety of other um, op different operational rules, um, which had to be covered for launch. 
Um, I mean, I think it's pretty well documented that they did absolutely none of that. Um, and so the developers who, again, are, who are the real heroes in the story, like if there's anyone who's just above reproach, um, it's the development team. Um, I think the uh, interview that they did with Gideon that like really touched my heart quite a bit was that um, they just basically came into the office every day um, as though nothing was awry, as though they would ship this by hook or by crook, to use a phrase. Um, and so they really kept their heads down and they just focused on the project. There was no um, hemming and hawing. There was no drama in the office. Um, it was only almost eerie because we had all these like pieces written about us that were like talking and spelling doom about the foundation. We had like people writing harassing emails to Arthur and myself. Um, and trying to extort us and give us death threats. But no, the dev team just kind of like stayed on point and just kept on doing what they were doing. Um, but yeah, that was the expectation that the foundation would fund the last bits of development. And I guess, you know, eventually they did do that. But uh, certainly that was the beginning of acrimony with the foundation was being remiss in its obligations. So, you know, I think the, the most successful thing that Johan did um, in this whole public um, saga is that he framed this as a personal dispute between Arthur, myself, and him. Whereas I think, you know, <laughs> there's a bunch of people who have a vested interest in this project and who were given employment contracts, so on and so forth, um, who were also very deeply hurt um, by the actions or inactions um, that he took. And so um, I, I think it was a more of a miscarriage of justice against uh, the, the project at large and not necessarily something that was like DLS versus the foundation. Like in theory, we're all, in, you know, rowing in the same boat, swimming in the same direction. And so there's no reason for there to be a personal acrimony over one party's um, failings to do their their very basic task. And then just to understand how T2 played a role in finally moving things forward, T2 didn't have money, is that correct? So how did that, how how were you planning to use T2 to launch the network? Ryan, would you like to take that? Sure. Um, you know, T2 did not have any money except for the, the money that, that, you know, that, that I paid, you know, for legal fees and different things. Um, so I think just providing a, uh, a safe place to, uh, for the network um, was the most important thing for us. I mean, ultimately, yes, there were significant runs uh, or funds raised during the donation period. But what we care about mostly is to see, you know, the Tezos, uh, project succeed and, and to go live and to, uh, and to make it. And, um, yes, the, uh, the, the funds, uh, help to, uh, kind of promote the Tezos protocol and, and it's going to help the ecosystem and there's a lot of uses for it, but we were going to find a way, some way to, to, to make it work. It was reported earlier this year that the SEC had sent subpoenas to dozens of ICO issuers and other providers. Did Tezos receive a subpoena from the SEC? We don't comment on any regulator, any regulatory matters. Okay. So you can't say anything at all about whether or not you have received a subpoena. There was an article that came out in fall 2017 that said that you guys had not. As far as legal and regulatory matters, um, we we don't comment on that. So I wouldn't uh, take it as one way or another that we, we don't comment. Okay. And um, just to go back to the amount of money that you personally put in, uh, wasn't it uh, 50000 It was, yes. Okay. So just out of curiosity, you know, we have a lot of these ICO projects that are turning to the Swiss foundation structure. What lessons do you feel like you've learned about using that structure for ICOs and for managing decentralized crypto networks? You know, I think generally... 
Um, I've certainly had a great experience as I've moved to Switzerland. Um, the uh, the ecosystem, uh, the Swiss in general, have been extremely gracious and kind to to me and and my family and, and our children. I represented after I became president of the Tezos Foundation immediately that I would move my family to Zouk. And so my wife and kids, we, we now live there. We've lived there since the first part of April, but really wanted to, um, to represent that number one, the Tezos Foundation, um, you know, things had changed. We were moving forward and, um, and also secondarily that, um, that we want to be the model for how this type of project, for how this type of foundation structure should work uh, moving forward. And so, as I mentioned before, we quickly expanded uh, the board and uh, I've had a great experience in Switzerland. I think that, um, you know, in general, you know, learnings, um, there's probably, you know, several key points that can be takeaways as far as, um, is, you know, moving forward as far as this kind of structure. But hindsight is always 2020, right? But, um, but I think that, uh, that, that a large, you know, board, a, a strong board, um, I think, um, that a clear strategy and focus on what matters. You know, generally, as the the foundation, um, we're not about the hype. Um, we're about the focus is on on delivering technology, and you know, cutting edge technology that that can change the world. I think secondarily, you know, really staying true to that ethos and that mission of decentralization. We are really focused on that. That you know, the Tezos Foundation is part of a of a larger community, the Tezos community, made up of scientists, of researchers, of developers, enthusiasts, activists, and, and we're all part of this um, this community together. Now, the foundation does have a, a somewhat unique role. Obviously, it has significant uh, resources resources that it's been, it's been given, and our, our uh, job and mission, as I see it, is to be wise stewards over those resources and really use them effectively uh, through grant-making uh, you know, processes and other similar means to uh, uh, help uh, you know the community to enable them to to build the you know the Tezos ecosystem and the Tezos community and, and to have a thrive globally so I think that a combination of those things I think that staying true to those roots of decentralization um, staying true to uh, some basic kind of uh, you know governance uh, rules as far as size of boards and whatnot and then you know having people involved that deeply care about the technology that combination is a combination I think that that sets us up for success let's talk about you know, what you were mentioning before about how you're putting all these resources in to make sure Tezos succeeds. Ethereum has the lead in the smart contract platform space now. EOS launched June 1st. You guys launched your beta net June 30th. We've got Definity, Cadena, Hashgraph, Polkadot, Tari, Algorand, all these others that are sort of kind of in a similar space in the blockchain slash crypto world. And they're all either going to launch soon or are in the works. What's your plan for success with so much competition? Sure. I, I think generally it, it's a few things. So so one of them, I think, is, is deploying the, the resources um, for their intended purpose in a meaningful manner. So we just announced a, a grant uh, program where we're, we're going to be expending you know, significant resources towards uh, research institutions, um, uh, local community groups, uh, the Tezos community, uh, people who are building tools and applications to, to work with Tezos, a uh, significant grant-making process to allow the entire community 
to come forward and to be a part of, of building the future of Tezos. So I think, you know, expending uh, resources is going to be a, a significant part of that. We've already um, announced, uh, you know, partnerships with premier uh, research institutions and different uh, kind of tooling and, and, and software helps that will help people interact with, uh, with the Tezos network. I think the second part of this is an interesting one that I've been thinking a lot about lately. So, you know, one of part of it is obviously this, uh, you know, expanding resources and being a wise steward. I think the, the, the second part is, is this, is that, you know, I think when all is said and done, as we move, you know, go forward um, two years and kind of look back, generally, I think it's not just about the Genesis block. And I say that broadly meaning technology, but it's also about the Genesis story and about the network and about the community that's created. And a lot of people look at the dysfunction of the foundation and you'll see a lot of headlines about, hey, here's what went wrong, you know, this and that. And, and the media likes to gravitate towards, uh, you know, a headline, right? Uh, you know, some something negative. But really, I, I choose to see it and I believe it's going to be the opposite. You know, in any successful, um, you know, whether it's in someone's personal life, whether it's an entity or even a society, people you know, reach these points of adversity and sometimes severe adversity. And sometimes people shrink, they step back, they decide to quit, they give up. But those who are successful push through the adversity and push through that brick wall and come out the other side. And they're tremendously successful. And they're successful not um, in spite of what happened to them, but really because of it. So when we look at uh, the core dev team, when I look at, uh, you know, the, the, the effort that Arthur and Kathleen have made, when I look at the community, I mean, in what world does a, a normal community member, um, you know, become the president of, of a foundation that, it, it, depending on the time, you know, has nearly a billion dollars worth of assets. But this is like the strength and the caliber of the people that we have involved in the, uh, in the ecosystem, in the Tezos community. And I, I think that people haven't quite realized that, that yet, but it'll become increasingly a parent that this is a tremendously galvanized group. It's it's a group that's gone through adversity and and we've come out the other side. And so I see that as a tremendous source of strength that through this Genesis story, I don't know if that's something that's replicable, you know, easily. Yeah, um, well, I think it remains to see how well you'll come out the other side. I don't know if this story is completely over on that. But it, it, it's it's not. But uh, but we've uh, and there's a lot long and, and I, I should I should phrase this correctly. You know, there there's a long way to go and there's obviously a lot to be done. But I think having overcome the adversity that we have and uh, and having, you know, launched the beta net and, and the direction that we're going is, is an extremely positive. Well, positive let's talk step. about some of the challenges, because so Tezos is written in these languages, OCaml and Mickelson, which are not very well known. And it has it has an interesting feature. I don't remember if we spoke about it much yet, but you know, here it is, a lot of these blockchain platforms and smart contract platforms are dealing with or creating financial systems. And as we saw with the Dow hack, where $15 million was pilfered from a uh, $150 million venture fund that was a smart contract. But the reason it was pilfered was because the, co the code allowed somebody to do that. Um, you know, we have seen kind of a need for something called formal verification, which is what Tezos has. But, you know, I don't know if that many developers care about that. You know, Ethereum doesn't have it. And 
So, you know, how are you, this is like a high friction choice for a developer to, to try to, to build on Tezos. How do you plan to persuade developers to build on Tezos? So, um, it's formal verification, just to clarify, Laura, um, formal verification isn't a feature that something has or doesn't have. It's an operation that can be performed on the code base um, in order to prove certain things about its behavior. And so it's it's kind of like you can formally verify a ham sandwich, right? Like it's it's an operation that you do on something. And uh, the feasibility of, like, of doing so um, is kind of contingent in how things are written and what it strives to do and what you're testing for, right? Um, so there's only a, a certain limitation or a certain scope. It's not a silver bullet. It's not, it's not uh, an end all be all. Um, but principally, you know, if I, if I do have one thing to clarify, um, from this framework, it's that it's not, um, a feature. It's something that can be performed more easily in Tezos. And, um, you know, to pick up on your previous question, I think this ties together. Um, Tezos was built with formal verification in mind. And so, um, formally verifying certain smart contracts in Tezos is, um, made much easier because the code was constructed with those operations in mind. But I think if I'm going to, just praise the team and the people who've been attracted to the project so far. I think that's kind of um, Tezos's key differentiator. These are really, really exceptionally talented folks in the OCaml community who've kind of come together and rallied around Tezos. The person who invented the language is, is part of the team that did the code review on it, for example. Um, and so you have like extraordinarily high caliber folks, many of whom often deal with things like uh, very large financial contracts in the hedge fund industry, for example, or the aerospace industry or nuclear engineering, so on and so forth. And so there's a lot of academic discipline and rigor um, that's been imbued in the in the code base and in the team. And I think that's acted as a magnet and filter effect on the people who have been attracted to Tezos. And I'm extraordinarily proud of the people whose resumes kind of come through uh, to the foundation because they're all extraordinarily talented people. And so I think that's been a very good differentiator. Um, I also think that the team had a lot of foresight and a lot of discipline discipline when they were building the, out the code base in the sense that it would have been very easy for Tezos to have launched with like proof of work, for example, um, several years ago, just for the sake of getting it out. But the team has so many like high internal standards that I think that would have been <laughs> sort of an anathema um, to their tastes. And so, you know, I, I don't know if Tezos will be blockchain in existence in 20 years. Um, but one thing that gives me solace and comfort um, is that the people who've been attracted to it are consistently just so extraordinarily rigorous in their thought. And um, they're so proud of their work and, and they take a tremendous amount of pride in what they do. That the compromise just isn't something that they, they really focus on. And how do you convince them, like the larger subset of developers who probably don't know these languages, how do you convince them to come over and build on Tezos? Well, it's funny you should ask that because um, in 2014, when the um, Tezos white paper was published, OCaml was still relatively obscure in the US, for example. Um, like I'd never heard of it. Um, and so, or I guess I had heard of it, but I didn't know how to program in it. Um, Haskell is far more popular in the US, for example, as a formal, uh, sorry, as a functional programming language. But in recent years, um, companies like Facebook, I think, has also stumbled upon the fact that um, OCaml is actually a really uh, good language to write languages in. Um, it gives you a lot of great properties for free, and it's um, there's a lot of uh, extensive tools around it. Um, and so Facebook is using um, OCaml to write some sort of AI engine and, and a proprietary language um, that they're using internally. And so I think a lot of people have picked up on what we thought, which is that a blockchain is ultimately a programming language. And, uh, and OCaml is an extraordinarily useful tool for this. So I think, you know, you find some developers who want to work with Tezos who are a little bit shy about um, OCaml and switching into something that's not as popular in, like, for example, the United States. But 
good devs can learn languages pretty fast. Um, you know, I, I remember when Arthur was working in finance, he would have to, every time he switched um, jobs, whether it was a bank or a hedge fund, he'd have to learn their proprietary language and how they did it on the desk. And usually it was a matter of like weeks before he was competing with his desk mates over who wrote the cleanest um, code. And so I think, you know, good devs aren't dissuaded by that sort of stuff. I do think that because OCaml is a little bit obscure relative to other programming languages, it does necessitate um, better declarative languages uh, that sit on top of um, Mikkelsen and compile down to Mikkelsen um, so that more more novice developers can have uh, greater use of the platform in a more accessible way. Um, but I think those bare bones that really have an eye on formal verification, for example, um, will make Tezos uh, a really interesting option for people looking to build smart contracts. You mentioned your consensus algorithm briefly. Well, actually, you indirectly mentioned consensus algorithms, but you guys decided to go with delegated proof of stake, which is a system in which, um, you know, people can stake tokens, but also can delegate the, the power of their votes to, to other holders. Some critics say that delegated proof of stake systems are plutocracies, government by the wealthy. Is that how you would describe your system? And is that the system you want? Well, I think plutocracy, plutocracy is a kind of a pejorative way of saying it. But I think in general, we write about the virtues of having um, skin in the game to make major decisions, um, whether it's in governance or in other um, sorts of sorts of measures. Um, and so by necessity, I think having these large blocks of delegates and delegators provides an interesting option for governance mechanisms, particularly because uh, Tezos has what we're trying to call uh, liquid proof of stake, meaning you can kind of change your uh, delegates in a dynamic fashion. And so you can quickly pick up on um, malfeasance and the like and make more dynamic choices rather than having hard-coded um, hard-coded people who have kind of a fixed stake. Um, so the, the community has another option or recourse um, to kind of challenge um, incumbents, not just kind of a, a fixed or hardwired uh, solution. And before we move on, can you just also describe what baking is so people know it's it's sort of like mining in Tezos, I guess? So, you know, baking is the, the method by which somebody uh, helps to validate the network. So if you're a stakeholder in the network, you can participate in a process called baking. Now, that's I think it harkens back to its French roots, you know, instead of, uh, of mining or, or minting or whatever you want to call it. It's uh, it's baking uh, on the Tezos network. And so it's really um, encouraging to see uh, the dynamics within the community and all sorts of people um, getting involved in this uh, baking process. And I, I think the, the neat part about it as well is just, I think, aligning everybody. Um, so the, uh, you know, the validators are, are very much aligned with the people, you know, that, that are the token holders. And, um, and it's really neat to see the dynamic within, uh, within the community. And also these different uh, services pop up, these where you can, you know, delegate and, uh, you know, delegates who, who, who are, are baking uh, on behalf of other people. And that can be done in a very secure way on the Tezos protocol, where you basically um, can, can give your right, um, you know, to bake to somebody else to do it for you. Um, and maybe somebody else who uh, is a little bit more tech savvy or, or, you know, better able to do that, that function. But it's really encouraging to see everybody get involved. And I think the last calculation I did is, I think we can have roughly, you know, 76,000, uh, theoretically, you know, a different bakers helping to validate the network based on, on the numbers. But it's encouraging to see how many uh, different people are getting involved and and, uh, and want to get involved and to see that ecosystem really take off. Well, just to throw out some numbers, uh, like 
there, so far there's over 400 people who've um, registered as delegates in the network and around 98% of people who've activated their tokens and participate in the network have, have taken part in the delegation process. So it's been like extraordinarily robust. And, and I think Arthur and I have both been pleasantly surprised at the, um, at the sheer numbers of people coming out to participate in this, this part of the validation. And when you say 98%, that includes both delegators as well as delegates. Yeah, basically people who've either like assigned the right to delegate to themselves or assigned it to someone else. Oh, interesting. So with baking, which, you know, as we mentioned, is validating transactions, um, is this linked with KYC AML, meaning are people identifying themselves? No, uh, you know, the, uh, the KYC AML, um, you know, program, that was something that was done, um, you know, it's a one-time uh, operation, you know, really um, generally uh, behind that, it's something that, um, you know, as, as, as a board, you know, we personally are concerned about the, you know, needless um, accumulation and gathering of, of personal data on the internet. And we really value data privacy. Um, you know, clearly the landscape continues to evolve in the industry and best practices continue to evolve. And so it became clear that, you know, current best practices are to do a KYC AML. And so we made that part of the process before someone can activate their, to- you know, access their token on the Genesis block. Uh, you know, that's separate from the baking process process. Um, There's no tie of of the record to any bakers, you know, or personal information or that sort of thing. It was just a one-time process to make sure that we were... So people's personal data is not connected to any public addresses? It's it's not connected to any bakers or anything like that. Now, um, the initial process was to say, hey, um, if you contributed to the donation period and, um, and, uh, you know, do the uh, KYC AML uh, for this public address so we can just verify that that address went through KYC AML, but it's not used for anything as far as, you know, baking or the ecosystem or anything. That's, that's, that's very, very private information. Okay. So um, to wrap up, just uh, I wanted to take a look at what's going to happen going forward. What will be the first apps to launch? You know, what is sort of like the foreseeable roadmap? I see uh, the ecosystem developing, you know, really well right now. So, you know, we started to fund um, different um, different tools and solutions around around Tezos, you know, through this grant making program. So we have a, a grant uh, out to Obsidian Systems. They're based out of New York, and they've been helping with uh, with baking solutions and really helping to make sure that we have. Um, uh, solutions that people are able to use, maybe people that are more tech savvy, but with the ultimate goal to kind of uh, uh, make baking uh, easily accessible for anybody. So it'd be neat, you know, someday if they, uh, you could order a baker in a box, for example, you could plug it in and it would, uh, it would be a technology solution that was very easy for you to, uh, you know, to bake with. Um, you know, one neat thing that's happening now is, um, you know, the ledger, um, Nano OS, traditionally it has been used for, um, you know, wallet functionality and and, and sending of, of tokens back and forth in a secure way, we now actually see ledgers being used for baking, which is, uh, I think, uh, uh, a way of using a ledger in NOS that's never been used before, to my knowledge, um, you know, as part of a proof of stake system to, uh, you know, help validate a network, which is really interesting and it's really cool. 
Um, I see other types of solutions, you know, different wallets and things that are, that are popping up. A lot of tools around the ecosystem, and we're just starting to see different groups start to pop up around, uh, you know, providing uh, solutions for different uh, uh, real-world problems. I think a focus for us um, that, or that I would like to see generally um, within the Tezos community, but I think as far as from a grant making perspective is we really want to connect the um you know the technology to real world applications to to things that are going to change how we do things and really benefit not only people but uh, institutions you know can something significantly be done better because of blockchain and what is that and how can we help to, to support that so we're just in the beginning of this grant making process to help enable that and facilitate that but i i envision and i i look forward to some real world applications um, popping up sooner rather than later great where can people learn more about each of you as well as tezos you know, they can go to Tezos.com and look at at, at the website there. At, uh, there's developer resources. It'd be great um, to continue to grow this developer ecosystem. Um, there is more information at the as far as the grant making process at TezosFoundation.ch. So those are two good locations to look. Great. Well, thanks for coming on Unchained. Thanks for having us. Thank you. Appreciate it. Thanks so much for joining us today. To learn more about Tezos, check out the show notes inside your podcast episode. New episodes of Unchained come out every Tuesday. If you haven't already, rate, review, and subscribe on Apple Podcasts. If you liked this episode, share it with your friends on Facebook, Twitter, or LinkedIn. And if you're not yet subscribed to my other podcast, Unconfirmed, I highly recommend you check it out and subscribe now. Unchained is produced by me, Laura Shin, with help from Elaine Zelby, Fractal Recording, Jenny Josephson, Rahul Sikiretti, and Daniel Ness. Thanks for listening.